Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We are continuing in our study and this morning are at chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. And again, I invite you to turn there in your scriptures and follow along as I read. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love For us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. R.C. Sproul tells of the day when, as a young boy, he was playing stickball in the streets of Chicago, where his family lived temporarily. This was a game that he thoroughly enjoyed, and he was up to bat. Home plate was a manhole cover in the middle of the street, and as any young boy will do, he mimicked the great hitters of baseball by tapping the plate with his bat. And the pitch was about to be thrown when the afternoon fun was interrupted by a spontaneous outcry of great noise and what felt like coordinated commotion. He writes, I was completely amazed to see people running out of buildings and aproned ladies pounding on pots and pans with wooden spoons. They were screaming and yelling in unrestrained jubilation. I had no idea what was going on except for the fact that my stickball game had just been ruined. I was not happy about it until my mother came out of the apartment building and rushed over to me with tears streaming down her face crying, it is over, it is over. And she grabbed me and hugged me. This was the joy of VJ Day, the end 
of World War II. And that meant, of course, in our home that my father's tenure in the service was over and that he would be restored to our family. Up until now, the Apostle Paul has been making the case that our justification by faith is both necessary and real, and furthermore, that it is scriptural. We spent time last week looking at the person of Abraham and followed Paul's conclusion that this is the way in which God justifies us in his sight. That it is not by any work that we do, but it is by God's grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. In Abraham's case, he was trusting in God's promise of the future work of Christ Jesus. In our case, we look back in time to the finished work of Christ, and yet the means of obtaining this salvation is the same. We both place our complete faith in the Word of God. Abraham trusted in God's Word that he would do it. We trust in God's Word that he has done it. And God counts our faith as righteousness. But now comes the glorious good news that Paul has been chomping at the bit to declare. The war is over. The decisive battle has taken place and peace has been firmly established between God and those who come to Christ in faith. The alienation that has existed between God and man ever since the fall of Adam has come to an end for all those who have been justified by faith. And what we will discover over the next four chapters is that Paul clearly understands that this justification by faith is not only necessary and real and scriptural, but it is also certain. That is, Paul wants there to be no doubt as to the certainty of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, and he will be making this case over these next several chapters, bringing his argument to its great climax at the end of chapter 8 with that stirring conclusion that there is absolutely nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we need to recognize that Paul writes here with the assumption that those who are reading this letter have all come to a point of faith in Christ. That is, that everyone in the church in Rome has been justified by faith. And this is very important because what Paul is about to articulate is not true for those who have not yet placed their faith wholeheartedly in Christ. The certainty and the effects of faith that he is about to enumerate are a reality for everyone who comes to Christ by faith alone, But it is not true for everyone because there are those who do not trust in Christ and perhaps never will. So, for example, you will sometimes hear people quote a small portion of verse 28 in chapter 8. I think we've probably all heard people say, well, all things work together for good, right? As though that is a biblical truism that universally applies to all people. But that's not what the verse says. Because some important qualifiers have been conveniently left out. The whole verse says, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, if you do not love God, all things are not going to work together for good. If you are not called according to His purpose, your expectations need to be dramatically adjusted because the end is not pretty for those who reject the Lord of life. Paul is writing to those who have embraced Jesus and have been justified by faith. And this is seen from the very first sentence of this chapter. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the first blessings for those who believe. A declaration of peace is made, putting an end to the hostility between God and the believer. Let us not forget that God's disposition towards the unrighteous is not, as some might have you to believe, a blanket pardon of all mankind. The psalmist declares, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Now so much for the thought that God loves you just the way you are. God does not wink at sin, and sinners may not dwell in His holy presence. And what Paul is telling us is that full pardon comes to all those who trust in the atoning work of Christ. It is as though a person who has been shown to be guilty in a court of law is preparing to hear the judge's sentence for their crimes when someone else steps into the picture and declares to the judge that they will pay the penalty for the guilty party. And the judge's willingness to accept that payment results in the guilty person being declared innocent and forever free. This is how we are reconciled to God. As we discussed last week, Paul makes clear that God imputes to us, he, he places to our account the righteousness of the Son. Conversely, all our sin has been imputed to Christ. And all the stored up wrath that God would have unleashed upon us on the day of judgment was unleashed on Christ on the cross. And there is nothing between us now that is left to be settled. As Jesus declared, it is finished. So when God the Father looks upon those who have responded to Christ's call in faith, what He sees is the very righteousness of the only begotten Son. And what liberation this brings to the penitent heart. Remember how Adam and Eve hid when they heard the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They were suddenly aware of their sin. They were filled with shame. They knew how holy God was. And their own spiritual condition was so soiled by their sin that they could no longer stand before God justified. And so they hid. But now... For the one who has trusted in Christ for their justification, 
the reverse is true. There's no longer a need to hide. There's no need to scurry into the dark corners of the world in some vain attempt to escape God's gaze. Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, the doors have been thrown open and the Son invites us into a personal relationship with God that will continually refresh us. And this access to the Father through the Son is another consequence of the new peace. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 declares, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a change this is from when God called Moses to climb the mountain, and he warned that the people should not touch the mountain, for if they did, they would perish. What a change this is from the God who established a sanctuary where the high priest alone could enter the Holy of Holies but once a year, and that only after he had meticulously attended to purifying rituals. What a change this is from the God who appeared to Isaiah and the prophet's reaction was to cry out, Woe is me, for I am undone. For he was convinced that he would die on the spot for having seen the effulgence of God's glory. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, because his shed blood covers our sin, and his righteousness has been imputed to those who believe, we now have access to God. We can approach God's throne with confidence, knowing that the debt has been paid and we no longer need worry about the eternal consequence of our sin. I read a story a few weeks ago about a young couple that owed a tremendous amount of money primarily because of their student loans The story recounted their trials and tribulations in the process of getting free of that burden. They made necessary sacrifices like keeping their thermostat at home at 60 degrees during the wintertime and eating uh, just plain noodles for dinner every evening and every little financial windfall that they received was thrown at their mountain of debt. It took them two and a half years, but at the end of that time, They had paid off over $140,000 of debt, and then they began to save like crazy until they had a reserve fund to cover several months of living expenses should they ever lose their jobs. And the gentleman remarked that there was a genuine sense of freedom once they were free of that great burden, as well as a mutual resolve to never return to that financial slavery. Now, if you have ever been there, then you can identify with that sense of liberty that floods you when the last debt has been paid and you never have to worry about creditors hounding you for payment. And when you know that the debt is gone because it has been paid in full, it is a satisfaction that is hard to describe. 
Well, such is the confidence that attends those who have placed their faith in Christ. The fear evaporates and is replaced with a love for God that exudes gratitude and thanksgiving for what He has done on our behalf in Jesus. Now, while the debt has been paid, our propensity to sin has not yet been fully eliminated. That will not happen until we have been freed from this sinful flesh which still clings to us. And so there may be times when we are inclined to turn back to hiding from God out of shame. But the writer of Hebrews assures us that we should not do that. Well, why not? Because there is one, he says, who makes intercession for us. He writes in chapter 7, Consequently, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The very Son of God is constantly paving the way for our access to the Father. From His seat at the right hand of God, the Son has the Father's ear. And until the day that you and I are taken to our heavenly home and we receive the fullness of our salvation, Jesus is making intercession on our behalf. There is nothing that occurs in your life that Jesus is unaware of, and there is nothing in your life that Jesus fails to mediate before God's throne. When you find yourself in grave distress and cry out to God, there is one who intercedes for you. He is the great mediator. In his discourse on being the good shepherd and being the door that we read a moment ago, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You see, it is based upon Christ's completed work and his ongoing mediation that we are able to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Can you see how hopeless we would be if our salvation rested in any way, shape, manner, or form upon us? We are so frail, we are so incapacitated, we are so incapable of accomplishing what would be necessary that we would be completely without hope should our salvation rest upon us in the very least. But because our faith rests upon the perfect work of the perfect eternal Son of God, we not only have reason to hope, we have a confidence that is so strong that those outside looking in might consider it to be boastful. But it isn't boasting in us because we're not contributing anything to the process of our salvation. Paul writes to the Galatians, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have nothing to boast about. While we are exercising faith, it's faith that God has given to us. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what some might consider to be an attitude of pride is not that at all. It is confidence in what Jesus has done. And this is what gives us hope. Now notice what our hope is in. In hope of the glory of God. We have spoken over the years, uh, uh, spoken about the Aaronic benediction, which I offer to you each and every week at the end of worship. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and bring you peace this day and always. This is what the ancient Jew longed for. The opportunity to see the face of God. Moses desired it, did he not? But the Lord told him that would not be possible. For no man shall look upon the Lord in all his glory and live. But that has now changed because of the work of Christ. Because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us and we have been justified in God's sight, what we look forward to is seeing the very face of God in all of His glory. And this is what gives us reason to rejoice. But notice what Paul says then. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, this is part of what Paul wants his readers to know and understand, that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. And it goes to this aspect of certainty regarding our salvation. There are some who preach what has come to be known as the prosperity gospel. There are so many of these charlatans that it would take too long to identify them all. I think you will know them by their fruits or by how big their private jets are. But essentially they teach that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and not all that wise. And to their way of teaching, if you are not healthy and not wealthy, then there is something wrong with your faith and you can be cured if you will just send them your prayer requests along with a gift of any amount. That's usually how that goes. But Paul does not teach that kind of nonsense. He makes his readers aware of the fact that suffering is something that we must learn to glory in or to boast in because it produces character traits in us that demonstrate that God the Father is behind it all. What does the writer say in Hebrews 12? But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We rejoice or we boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces these Christ-like qualities in us. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, We rejoice that we identify more deeply with Him who suffered so much on our account. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, we rejoice that it produces a spiritual endurance in us. 
that in turn produces a spiritual character, that in turn produces an even greater hope. In other words, when we truly become biblically wise, we see that trials and tribulations are a means by which God is at work in us, mortifying or putting to death our sinful inclinations and producing an even greater hope in Christ than we had at the beginning of our discipleship. A hope that is even more certain because it has grown in confidence of the love of God that has flooded our hearts by the presence of God's Spirit in us. You see, there is so much more to come. How do we know that? Paul says that if God was willing to offer His only Son as our substitute while we were His enemies, do you not think that now that we are friends, He won't also give us everything else? Now ponder that for a moment. Don't quote me on this, but I think, if memory serves, I was trying to find this illustration early this morning and was unable to do so. But I think it was Dwight L. Moody who once offered an illustration to some folks to whom he was preaching concerning the jeweler, Charles Louis Tiffany, who once waited upon a young man who was shopping for an engagement ring for his sweetheart. And he had brought along with him a buddy to help him in this decision-making process. But it soon became apparent that the rings in the store were way beyond this young fellow's means. But Mr. Tiffany was taken by the young man's story and his obvious love for his intended that he decided to offer him any ring of his choice in the store as a gift young man was blown away by the offer. He could hardly believe that this jeweler would do such a thing. But after several assurances, he walked around the store and eventually chose a truly breathtaking ring. And Mr. Tiffany smiled at him, congratulated him on his choice, told him he would clean and polish it afresh, and he would return shortly. And after he left, the young man and his buddy continued to marvel over the lavish gift that Mr. Tiffany had made to him, at which point the young man said to his friend, I wonder if it would be too much to ask him to gift wrap it in in those fancy blue boxes that they are known for. To which his friend replied, Well, if he's willing to offer you the best ring in his store, why would you think that he would refuse to gift wrap it for you? And this goes to Paul's point here. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And Paul will bring this up again, this same point at the end of chapter 8, when he's drawing this whole section to that great great climax and he says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things if while we were enemies he would give to us the life of his only begotten son what would possibly cause god to refuse to bring us 
all the way home. What would possibly cause God to refuse to give us everything else now that we've been reconciled? And you see, Paul is driving home this point that because of all that Christ has accomplished through his life and death and resurrection and ascension, that our salvation is sure and certain and any who have come to him in faith can know that they have peace with God. Let me ask you, does that describe you? Are you at peace with God? If not, then know this. You are invited even now to repent of your sin and put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. And if you do, God promises that He will forgive you of all your sin and welcome you into the company of all those who follow His Son. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray together today.